Welcome to our first episode of our new series, the success series here on Talent Talks in partnership with the Business Post. Today, we are so excited to introduce none other than Aidan Corbett, the serial tech entrepreneur and CEO of Wayflyer. Our guest, Aidan, is certainly no stranger to media, receiving extensive coverage over the last 12 to 18 months across various different channels. Today, we'll be discussing the phenomenal success of his e-commerce financing platform, Wayflyer, which he founded in 2019 with Jack Pierce. Brute, what a guest. Unbelievable. Just so insightful. What they have achieved is phenomenal. Just to hear from him, everything from, you know, the merit he does or doesn't put on an MBA, you'll have to listen to find out. Um, You know, their expansion plan and how it's sort of two-tier pronged you know, how he switches off, does he switch off, sort of success, what it means to him, just, you know, even down to how he manages his diary day to day, really, really insightful from someone who is just such, a, it, the whole thing is such a phenomenal success story and such a nice guy as well. So he gives us a more detailed insight into Wayflower in the podcast. Do you want to give us a, just a quick overview so everyone understands? Absolutely. Who they are? Yeah, absolutely. For those who haven't heard much about them, just, just a couple of points to highlight why this company is taking the global e-commerce industry by storm. So as set up, set up as Ed sorry, mentioned, set up in 2019, essentially they provide short-term finance for businesses that sell goods online in a nutshell. They secured a record-breaking 76 million US dollars in Series A funding in a round led by left lane capital in may 2021 and to give you a little bit of context stripe raised 18 million us dollars in their series a fund round wayflyer raised 76 million and their headquarters is dublin but they have offices in london new york and sydney and they also opened their us office in atlanta early last year they have very strong additional growth plans in australia and also across uh, the eu to include the likes of france spain and netherlands Um, and these are the kind of circles that aiden and wayflyer move in they were name checked by liam casey who's the ceo of pch international as the next great irish startup during a virtual fireside conversation with jp morgan and this was the company that liam Casey said that JP Morgan should be chatting to um, back in October 2020, and he called it well. So, uh, I mean, this, is, this isn't this is Aiden, Aiden, who's from Cork. It's not his first startup rodeo. And in fact, Wayflower is his third startup venture, uh, in addition to Cubicle and Conjura. Um, in the middle of the recession in 2011, Aiden moved to London to do an MBA. And this, ironically or interestingly, is where he caught the entrepreneurship bug. I think that's enough from us. Let's jump straight into it. Aidan, you are very, very welcome. We're absolutely delighted to have you here with us. Many thanks. A question which we like to kick off all of our podcast episodes with is, what does success look like to you? Tough one to to open with. Is that personally or professionally or both? Both. 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 I'm not sure I have a good answer for it. I do think it's changed. So I do think if I think 10 years ago, what I thought success looked like then is probably different to now. Now it's probably a combination of professionally growing Wayflower to the next level, which would probably hopefully see it as a 10 or $15 billion company. And then personally, uh, I became a dad about five months ago. Congratulations. So about how do you become a good dad as well as a good brother, son, friend, husband, etc. But I do think it changes a lot over time. I, I think what sure. I define success professionally as five years ago is probably less than what I consider today. So I don't think you're ever really satisfied once you get what you want. 
you, you're always looking at the next thing. Brass is always greener. Um, I think a lot of people resonate with that just in terms of success changing. Can I just ask one question? The, 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 the 10 to 15 billion figure, mm. why is that You know, a, a number that sounds good to you? Is that a number that's driven by particular factors? It's probably about 10 times bigger than what we are today. Okay, um, okay. I think t- 10 is a good round number to aim for without having a great reason. Yeah, so it's probably 10 times where we're at today, I think. Do, do you ever see when you, when you get to that point of 10 to 15 million dollar valuation is it then 100 150 like are Probably. you this is where yeah, the, this it, is where the uh the, where the the success moving goalposts happen I sure think, yeah yeah so th- this would not have been what i would have considered success maybe three years ago but i think you you always move according to where you are there's always a lovely phrase people use which is you know remember the day when you wanted what you have now I'm particularly bad at that. Yeah, I think we're we're all in that boat, right, Ruth? <laughs> so, um, but it, it it is good to hear. I guess one thing from talking to similar business leaders like yourself is, you know, definition around success mm-hmm. uh, and almost being relentless about it. Um, is enough ever enough? Um, and, and I think moving that goalpost along the course of your career seems to be a a common trait to you know high performing ambitious entrepreneurs would you agree yeah but i i think that i think it's sometimes it's okay if it's not enough because if it was enough i think you i'd be bored you know so i don't think um you know if you haven't attained what you're aiming for yet that doesn't mean you're unhappy or it doesn't mean that anything is wrong and actually mm-hmm. i think i'd probably be happier in the zone of trying to aim for something i haven't achieved yet and if i didn't have that drive I'd probably be bored so when people say you know so and so is they're never happy with what they have they might actually just be happy in pursuing what they don't have and that's sure. that's probably a positive finding that your your own calmness in that chaos I guess is is again probably another uh, that's where your calmness the most comfortable is amongst the chaos and that's definitely a trait from other entrepreneurs too do you, obviously this is many, many, many years away for you, but do you ever envisage a stage where it will be, you know, the pina colada on the beach, you know, chilling, relaxing, or do you think there'll always be something simmering, always something going on to maybe a lesser extent in the background? It's hard to know because again, you you change a lot as you get older, but right now that would be pretty hard to envisage. Yeah. My, okay. my two week or my week long sun holiday by the end of the week, it's, it's always beginning to like refocus back on work so i'm not sure the pina colada life right now would be would be something that was sustainable for me. okay okay if i can take it back i guess to your your previous career pre-wave flyer um i guess certainly not the typical entrepreneur background that you would see coming out of silicon no valley you know um you, you have an mba cons- consulting um civil service even and you even worked uh, as an employee imagine so i'm sure you'd be kicked out of many cool clubs in silicon valley for mentioning that but <laughs> what what really kind of was the trigger point to setting up your own business coming from that pretty generalized background i think it was during the mba so when i applied for the mba i didn't want to become an entrepreneur that's what, not why i did it and if you want to become an entrepreneur an mba is not a good idea uh, I think what you should do instead is become an entrepreneur because you'll learn faster and you won't end up with 50 to 100 grand in debt at the end of it. So um, it was during the MBA and I did not ever envisage becoming an entrepreneur until I was doing the MBA. 
and I kind of had the MBA is a very expensive way of taking time out and thinking about what you want to do. And uh, I just was able to experiment with different jobs. So you could act as a asset manager for a week or two. You could go and get a job with, you know, a large company for three months. Um, you could experiment with different jobs and what you're interested in. And that's when I kind of got interested in entrepreneurship. Uh, so it was during the MBA. Then I wanted to learn during the MBA how I could build software products myself. And during the MBA, I, I learned how to code. And that was really the, the start of um, my entrepreneurial journey. And then a year after the MBA finished, I ended up launching Cubicle, which was the first startup. Sure. And I think hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But looking back, if you were at that point in time where you're deciding whether to do the MBA or start a business business at that stage, would you still complete the MBA looking back? No, I would have. No, no I would have. Um, I would have started the company. Yeah. And it's it's I'm grateful that the MBA unlocked this opportunity for me. It would have been cheaper and faster just to start my own company on, on day one. Interesting. Okay. Is there elements of the MBA that you use, I guess, you know, um, in your, in your new role as such, you know, obviously Wayflower is the biggest business that you've, you've been part of or, or, or mm-hmm. owned. Um, you know, is there elements of it that you're drawing on now? And, and I guess that would be sometimes the pitch that, you know, high, high level universities use, you know, you'd grow into your MBA. Uh, is that true to, to you? Yes, to an extent. So there, there are components of the MBA that I would use. So it's helpful for me to understand company valuation, financial modeling, profit and loss statements, balance sheets. I don't deal with it on a day-to-day basis, but it's nice to have a knowledge of those components. But it's it, it would not be enough to justify it if you're becoming an entrepreneur. So I think the MBA is a great floor um, that it creates for people who want to change careers. So the people in my MBA class who got the most out of the MBA were typically wanting to change direction in their careers. So maybe they were a lawyer and they wanted to become a management consultant or they were sure. a management consultant and they wanted to become an investment banker or something like that. What the MBA does is it, it creates a floor under which you can't really drop because mm-hmm. a lot of the big institutions have graduate entry levels at MBA level. So it's a great way to change your career and kind of and enter a new career at a certain level um, because there is that entry gateway for MBAs and the whole milk round recruitment process is geared towards MBAs along with graduates. So it is a very important role for people who want to switch careers. It's just not a good idea for people who want to do entrepreneurship, I don't think, because you should take the money that you're paying for the MBA, put that into your startup. You'll learn a lot faster and it's, it's mm-hmm. better use of time. Wayflyer, for those who have not heard about you guys and what you do, can you give us a very brief uh, insight into what exactly that is? Sure. So Wayflyer offers short-term finance for e-commerce companies. So e-commerce companies have a very difficult working capital profile, which means they have to pay money out to suppliers before they recognize revenue. So if I'm an e-commerce company and I'm making a big order for Q4 for the Black Friday and Christmas period, Last year, I probably wanted to contact my supplier in August and make an order. And on that day, I will need to probably pay a deposit of 25 or 30%. Four or five weeks later, when the goods are ready to be shipped, they won't leave the factory until um, it's maybe, you know, they won't leave the factory until I've paid back 
the, rem the remainder of the invoice. So we go 70, 75%. Then I'll have to wait for a couple of weeks for the goods to arrive in my warehouse. Then I need to spend money on marketing and only then do I generate revenue. And what Wayflower does is we fund that spread. So we give you the money to pay for inventory. We give you the money to pay for marketing. We give you the money to pay for freight up until the point at which you recognize revenue. And that helps e-commerce companies grow a lot faster than if they didn't have access to that finance. And e-commerce companies historically have found it hard to access finance because banks would struggle with the fact that they often have not been around for very long. They don't have fixed assets. Um, they don't have recurring revenue streams. And what they'd also struggle with is uh, the fact that um, it's hard to get security on inventory for e-commerce. And then obviously equity investors haven't invested heavily in e-commerce over the last couple of years because there isn't an obvious moat like a network effect or an economy of scale or something of that ilk. So it's a, it's a sector that needs a lot of working capital and hasn't been very well served. So that's where we jumped in. Aiden, Wayflow is your third venture. Uh, obviously you with Cubicle, Conjura, uh, and I know obviously there's some links between Conjura and, and the underwriting yep. system with, with Wayflower. How does that work? I guess I'm an e-commerce company. I'm in need of funds for the exact reasons that you've described. I knock on your door. I ask for, for cash. How does it work and how do you decide if it's a, a yes or a no? So when you share your information on signing up with Wayflower, you'll share merchant data from your e-commerce platforms. You'll probably share some data related to your ad platforms so we can see how effective your advertising is. Um, and we'll probably um, get access to your bank account through open banking. And what we do with that data is essentially try and predict your performance over the next six months. So what do we think revenue will be? What do we think cash flow will be? And then if there are any risks associated with that, and based on that projection, we make certain offers to you. And we structured the offer as a merchant cash advance. And a merchant cash advance has two primary components along with the amount. Um, so if I are, the two components are the fee and then you have the remittance rate, which is a percentage of daily sales that we take. So if I advance $100,000 to you and I charge you a fee of 5%, I will get paid back $105,000 ultimately as a percentage of daily sales. Um, and that's the way the merchant cash advance works. When you look at the, the, the revenue finance model or the, the repayment model that you have versus your traditional bank loan structure, mm -hmm. why, why did you decide to go that way, I guess, obviously considering it is a lending platform somewhat yeah. similar to, to how a bank would, would operate? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's not categorized as a loan at all. And okay. it, has, it has one big advantage, I think, over a, a classic loan. And that is our incentives are aligned with yours. So in Wayflower's case, because we get paid back as a percentage of daily sales, we need your sales to grow. We want your sales to grow. We are incentivized for your sales to grow. So we want to help you grow. Um, traditional lenders do not have that incentive. As long as you make the fixed repayments every week or every month or every two weeks or every quarter, they don't really care about your performance because you're on the hook to pay anyway. Whereas if your performance drops um, after taking an advance from Wayflower, I'm on the hook for that because I am taking performance risk on you. And that offers great downside protection for the e-commerce company because they know if a shipment goes missing or ad campaigns stop working, the remittances to Wayflower will drop as well. So the big difference is we're much more aligned with um, the counterparty um, or our customers than banks would be with borrowers because 
if you do really well and your sales grow quickly, we do really well as well. So it's growth focused, you know, it's in essence, a partnership almost, even though you're funding their business. Very much um, so. Yeah. Interesting. So Aiden Wayflyer, obviously your largest venture to date, as you know, as you grow as a business, you, you, you need to bring in specialists, right? And, you know, from your background, you, you might say that you're a bit of an all-rounder. I think you've thrown your, your hat at a few different things from coding to sales and that kind of stuff. But, you know, what gave you the confidence to say, you know, I'm the, the person to really lead this business, even at the size that you're at right now? Um, what did you kind of fall back on in terms of your confidence to do that? It's a good question. I think you probably reevaluate every six months or a year and check whether you are the person to lead the business uh, because the job changes every six months. So my role now is very different to what it was six months ago. And there is a point at which a lot of founders say to themselves, actually, I'm not the best person to lead the business. And that may happen to me at some point. I do think having the, if you can scale as a founder, there's a massive advantage to the founder being CEO. And the primary is, you have legitimacy within the organization to make big changes because you're probably the biggest owner and you also have that you know, credibility from day one of making decisions that have worked. So I think Andreessen Horowitz are very big on this, that if you look back at all the big venture exits, be it you know, Google or Facebook or Twitter, the founders tended to lead the company. Um, and that has been you know, not always the case, but mm -hmm. if that can work, tends to result in the biggest outcomes. So I may not be the best person to lead it in six months or in a year or in two years. So you probably have to ask yourself that question every so often. Um, but right now I think if I can scale and having the, the knowledge of the business from day one, um, I think it is better for the founder to stay a CEO um, unless something majorly troublesome is happening in, in performance. Yeah. I think that's a really good tip though, doing that six month audit, if you like, just sort of reevaluate because it does change. The role absolutely does change. Mm -hmm. Six months sounds like a lot, but a lot can happen in six months as clearly you've experienced. Yeah. And I think in recent times you've seen maybe the likes of Gymshark, you know, Ben Francis, founder, young guy, realized obviously that he didn't have the skill set to, to lead a CEO, but now stepped out, stepped back in. So I think what you're saying definitely holds weight. I guess going back to every six months doing a, a little audit of yourself, I suppose in anticipation for where the business is growing to you know, thousands of people or a multi-billion dollar corporation, is there anything you're doing right now to prepare yourself for that six month or 12 month audit when you have twice as many people in the business or twice the value in the business? Yeah, so one thing we try and do a lot is develop relationships with operators who've done this before. And what I mean by that is um, talking to CEOs, CFOs, uh, VPs of engineering product who've scaled to stages beyond us and really just generating insights from them. And really what they have is they should have a map of where the landmines are. So yeah. we could be doing something today that doesn't really affect the business. And if we keep doing it in six months time, it'll be a huge issue. So one thing that I try and do is develop relationships with operators who've scaled beyond where we are today, and then ask them to kind of share their map of where some of the landmines are so we can avoid them. And, and Aiden, then, are, sorry, are they in your sector? Are they in the, the FinTech space specifically, or is it broader? Typically it's broader. 
because okay. most of the things that we worry about right now are not specific to fintech because it's in relation to how do you scale an organization how do you keep the culture as you expand into new geographies and open new offices how do you operate a company that's hybrid slash remote uh with 500 people instead of 200 people all of those things are probably not fintech specific the fintech specific stuff we worry about less actually than growing the organization i think so that's one thing i try and do which is talk to people who moved one or two stages ahead so they can kind of map out for you out of the landmines that we might be about to step into and what we can avoid if, if you jump into that a, a bit deeper i guess you know there's a lot of talk around having a core group of, of mentors maybe or, or a mentor um yeah. <clears throat> there's different ways that you can approach that i think what you're saying is you know talk to it, it seems maybe a bit casual is it that casual is there you know once a month once a quarter check in see where the milestones are, are at for Wayflower or, or how does that work for, for you? So we, we utilize a lot of networks. So our VCs have great networks. So if I wanted to talk, let's say, for example, I wanted to talk to a CFO who has taken a company public, I can ask my VCs because they will probably have portfolio companies that have gone public and they can make a connection to a CFO. And I'm also a member of a really great international network called Endeavor for fast growing scale-ups. I would also ask Endeavor, who in your network um, could I be connected to? Because I'd like to talk to a CFO of a company that's recently gone public, ideally a fintech. So I utilize networks a lot. And that's been very helpful, particularly to take you outside of your immediate network, but more importantly, to take you international. Because there's relatively few reference points, if any, of a CFO in Ireland who's taken a tech company public in the last you know, five years. So it's important to cultivate those networks on an international basis because you just have a much wider pool of relevant people to talk to. And do you find, Aidan, are people quite willing to talk? Are they quite willing to give you their time if you ask? It helps when you come through a network like that. So sometimes okay. you can do an outbound LinkedIn and it might work, but it helps if a VC is a conduit and if they're a member of the Endeavor network, they tend to do that anyway. Okay, super. If you look back at the Wayflower story to date, were there particular milestones which jump out for you, which indicated to you that, yep, this model is working, we're onto something big here? Yeah, uh, probably month two, where we were generating sales and it wasn't from one of the founders. So one of the things that I okay. think is a, my definition of product market fit for a B2B company is when uh, the average salesperson can sell the product to the average customer. Founders are very good at selling and the founder might sell to 10 or 15 companies through, through, you know, through force of will and passion more than anything else. The real question is, is can you bring in a hundred salespeople and get those salespeople to sell your product for you? Not just be it a, a kind of a passionate, strong-willed founder. So once we saw early on that, uh, or early salespeople could sell the product very easily. And they were really good, now, not to suggest they were average for a second, but once it moved beyond founder selling, that was real strong proof to us that, that this could scale. And at what point did you say, right, we're, we're really doubling down on this? Uh, and I think even from, you know, a venture capital perspective, you know, your, your story of 76 million is, is you know, widely applauded. At what point did you say that's what we need to, to really go after this? It, was it after probably that point? Day, no, probably from day one, because, you know, 
it's a very capital intensive business running a, a you know an, an mca business we need to raise a lot of debt ourselves and we need a lot of equity so it was always going to be capital intensive so from day one we knew we were going to be raising a lot of money from vcs on a continual basis so i think from day one we actually realized we'd we'd be raising a lot of money if we were to be successful we never really had this choice of whether we would be strap or not the business model just wouldn't allow you to do that so you're a big advocate of always take the money is that correct correct yeah so um obviously have have heard that a few times um i guess give us the rationale behind it it's certainly not something that you would generally hear specifically irish people talk about i think they can be quite protective of everything they own um yeah. what's your rationale so there's a couple of reasons and i think in the past it it would have made it was a legit concern um but a lot of the reasons for not taking the money in the past have gone so i think one of the early reasons in the past was you give up control and today if you're a founder and you're raising seed money at the beginning it's highly unlikely that you would actually be giving up control particularly if you structure the incoming investment as a safe or as a convertible loan note if you structure it correctly you shouldn't be giving up control so the first reason for actually um you know, a bootstrapping, which is, I want to stay in control, that's pretty much gone away. Um, okay. So that's that's the major thing. The second thing is today, it's much harder to hire engineers and pay them market salary than it was in the past because those market salaries have gone up a lot. So if you want to hire great people, you do need to pay them. If you don't, if you can't pay them, you end up giving them a ton of equity. So you still get diluted uh even though you haven't raised any money so if you look at the economics the economics are almost always in favor of raising the money and then hire great people with that money rather than hiring them without any money and you end up giving up more of the company so even the the benefit of non-dilution when you're bootstrapping doesn't really exist if you need to hire great people because they're rightly going to demand a lot of equity if you can't pay them a salary sure it kind of goes back to the age old thing of you know 50 percent of something big is always better than 100 percent of something tiny right so uh do you find that even other i'll give, founders you, I'll give you i'll give you one more reason why i think yeah um, sure why i think it's better than bootstrapping you get to focus on it full time and you get to make longer term decisions so if you're bootstrapping you're normally consulting on the side just to have some money coming in and that massively distracts you and often you can never actually get out of that pattern of doing consulting and then the second thing to bear in mind is when you don't have a lot of cash in the bank, you make short-term decisions, which are typically not good long-term decisions. So merely the fact of having 12 to 18 months runway in the bank, you make radically different decisions with that there than if you didn't have it. And those decisions tend to lead you to potentially having a much bigger outcome than making short-term decisions. So that's why I'm massively in favor of always taking the money. I guess if you look at venture capital funding, you know, a lot of interest in Irish businesses. We've seen kind of the growth of Irish unicorns and obviously the most recent one been been Flipdish uh, as well. Um, from a, a venture capital perspective, you don't see the size and scale of investments from European based VC funds versus US funds. Why is that? Do you believe? And you know, are are European VCs missing a, a a trick as such? I think the US funds are bigger. 
so they have the ability to write very big checks. However, um, one of our biggest investors, DST, I think is a European fund, but certainly the fund that we've they've invested in us, I think is, um, it may be European, I think. Certainly the, the partner is based in London. So there are big European funds. They're just more US funds that do late stage funding. And that's why they're, they're prevalent. Um, I think Europe is definitely catching up. And if you look at any of the numbers, there's a higher percentage of VC being deployed out of Europe today than out of the US. To be honest, as an Irish entrepreneur, it doesn't matter because both of them will fund you. So I'm, a, I'm pretty agnostic as to whether it's a US fund, a European fund, or an Asian fund. Being in a certain location might give me advantages from a network perspective, but we don't need uh, a very strong European VC network in, in Europe, really, because the American funds are here and they're investing very heavily in European startups today. And what is it about Irish businesses or tech or fintech businesses right now? Why are US funds so interested in um, in investing here, do you think? I, I don't think it's Irish specific. I think they've just moved okay. out beyond the US. And uh, I think COVID has accelerated it. So once you become comfortable with being able to invest in companies without having to meet them in person, then uh, you're more than happy to move out beyond the US as to where you see deals. I also think probably valuations are lower uh, outside the US than in the US, but I don't think they're making a special exception for Ireland. I just think in general, they're investing much more heavily outside the US. Arguably COVID-19 has been very positive for the Wayfair story to date. Obviously global e-commerce sales have, you know, have grown exponentially. What are your predictions for the e-commerce industry post-COVID when the world opens up again? I think there's a lot of behavior changes that will never go back. So I don't think it's going to snap back to kind of a pre-COVID level. I think it's going to continue growing. It may not get the same boost again that, that COVID gave it, but I think COVID yeah. probably pushed their behaviors on five to 10 years, or five years anyway, from where they were. Agreed. So my parents are buying online today. They were not doing that <laughs> pre-COVID. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> Okay, interesting. And we've like we've seen huge, you know, from our perspective as well, in terms of clients in the FS fintech space, there's a huge increase in, in the kind of, you know, non-bank lenders, atypical lenders and digital banking platforms. Do you foresee Wayflyers market becoming crowded over the coming years because of this growth? Uh, not particularly. I think we do have competitors, but it's it's probably not as competitive as it would appear from the outside because a lot of non-bank lenders are focused on different verticals and one of the things that i'm very big on is vertical finance rather than what we currently have which is regional finance and what i mean by that is regional finance is you would typically get from in ireland you would get finance from aib or bank of ireland because mm. they are irish banks whereas in future i think if you're a restaurant you'll get finance from the restaurant bank if you're an e-commerce company hopefully you'll get finance from wayfire if you're a mechanic, you'll get finance from the mechanic bank. Because if you focus on a vertical, you're going to be much better at underwriting that vertical than a more generalist bank whose only USP is, well, mm. we are local. That, I don't think that's a USP anymore. So that move towards you know, vertical finance is one that we're very big on. And that's why we will never move outside of e-commerce because it's a big vertical. And the benefits that we accrue from just focusing on a single vertical are huge. And it makes it hard to enter, particularly if you're a more generalist finance provider. Makes sense. Makes sense. Quick question. Does it get any easier 
So whether you're going into new markets, whether you're you know taking the company from the 250 employee mark to the 500 employee mark, does it get any less daunting for you? Uh, no, it gets less stressful because okay. I don't look at the bank account every day like I did <laughs> for the first <laughs> for the first two years of all the startups. So we feel your pain there. Yeah. So I, and so we I need think, to delete that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think it gets I think it gets less stressful. It's um it's not kind of life and death, but you have to continue to kind of reinvent yourself as a leader because the job changes every six months. Um, but I would say it's as challenging like intellectually um, and emotionally, but it's less stressful because it's not life and death. Going back to how you've changed in the last kind of six, 12 months, you know, what are the key things that you've developed and, and focused on? I think one thing I'm doing recently is I'm able to offload the aspects of the job that I had to do previously that I didn't enjoy. I'm able to offload those onto people who are better at it and allowing me to focus on the parts of the job that I enjoy. So rather than trying to be very good at all aspects, try and outsource the components I'm not naturally good at or that I naturally don't get energy from and focus more on the parts where I can make a big difference. Uh, that's something I've tried to do. That's easier to do as you build out your management team as well. Uh, so a couple of senior hires that we've made have just made enormous differences, which have allowed me to kind of go back and focus on products and marketing, which is where I enjoy spending my time. And that could be, you know, uh, head of people that could bring in a new finance director. But that's something that I'm kind of focused on, which is if there's a part of my role where it's sucking in my energy, I don't feel like I'm particularly good at it. It's probably somebody in the org or somebody I can hire to do it. Um, that has been a, a focus for me over the last six to 12 months. And in general, is that kind of a piece of advice that you'd give to maybe budding entrepreneurs around, you know, if there's an element of your role that feels like you drag, it drags you down a little bit, do you try and bring someone in, a specialist to do that? Um, you can, but you, you have to you have yeah. to balance that with budget. So, sure. yeah. you know, you wouldn't be hiring a, a head of people when you've six people. Uh, so <laughs> you, you have to you have to kind of scramble and, you know, wear, you know, 10 hats in the early days. But I think as you get uh, bigger, you have that ability to, you know, focus on the parts of the role that you think where you add uh, a huge amount of value and bring somebody else in to do the other components. Mm. And how often then, it, where you outsource, if you like, and where you bring in good key specialists that report back into you, for you, how often do you like that reporting back to happen so that you still feel you have enough oversight over it and control? At the end of the day, it's your baby. And so I tend, we tend to have um, one, one, one-to-ones weekly with most of my direct reports. Okay. So it's, it's pretty frequent, but uh, it just means that that component of the job is, you know, half an hour of my week or an hour of my week rather than four to five hours a week. And that makes an enormous difference. So okay. we tend to do weekly one-to-ones with, with most direct reports. And then there'll obviously be other components where I might be asked to review documents or position papers, but yeah, it's a weekly one-to-one with all direct reports. In terms of the next two to three years, Aiden, for Wayflower, do you know what's, what's the, the plan, I guess, if you can share where you are right now is obviously an incredible story to date. And I know based on what you wanted to be 10 to 15 billion, you know, what's the next two years, three years look like for, for you guys? So we will probably um, expand a lot faster into Europe 
today a lot of our sales are focused on the UK, Ireland, Spain, and the Netherlands. And there's a lot of other markets to enter in Europe. Um, and we'll also probably release a lot of additional products. They may be finance products, or they may be other products that are relevant to e-commerce founders, but are not necessarily finance products. So the twin track is continue to grow um, our Merchant Cash Advance product, and at the same time, see if we can um, add additional products uh, to our to our arsenal that our customers can use. Exciting. Very. In addition to obviously uh, hiring where you need to hire so that you can focus your energies on the right, in the right places, what other key pieces of advice would you have for budding entrepreneur CEOs? At what stage, Ruth? Early stage. Okay. It's funny because the, the, the advice can change dramatically mm. uh, at, at different stages. For example, in the early days, when you do a raise, you probably want to conserve your cash as much as possible, keep the team as small as possible until you hit product market fit. Okay. And then you flip 180 and you have to raise a ton of money and go out and spend it as fast as possible. So <laughs> the advice can change dramatically. <laughs> Slightly different mindset. Depending on the, depending on the, the stage. Uh, but one thing, and this probably is more B2B than B2C. The one thing I would say is solve a painkiller rather than being a vitamin. And when you're a painkiller, it means that you're solving the problem that is keeping your customer awake at night. You will get more traction faster. You will have shorter sales cycles. It will be easier to market your product if it is a painkiller. If it's a vitamin, it can be a very successful product, just makes things a bit harder because response rates, mm. uh, conversion rates, um, it's just a lot more challenging when you're not solving something that's an urgent problem that's keeping somebody awake. So that, that's been a big thing for Wayflower. We are solving the issue that keeps e-commerce founders awake, which is, do I have enough cash to run and grow my business? Solving that, um, I think, is probably resulted in a lot of our growth, the fact that it's a painkiller, not a vitamin. I think I have a new tagline for you. I think it's Wayflyer, the Salpatine of e-commerce finance lending. <laughs> you, you can have that. You can have that one for free, Aiden. You can have that one for free. Yeah, I love that. that. Love that. Very good. <laughs> that has been so insightful, Aiden. Thank you so much. But to, before we let you off the hook, we do what we call our rapid fire round with all of our guests, where we finish this off by asking you, as you would imagine, a couple of rapid fire questions so we get to know Aiden Corbett even better. Question number one best business book you have ever read? Uh, seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer. So the seven powers are the seven ways in which you can okay. have uh, lasting, sustainable, uh, outsized pro profits. So there are seven okay. ways to, to build a sustainable, profitable company. There are seven powers that you can have as a, a company. And he goes through each of them, how to get them examples. And it's the best business book I've ever read. I will be on Amazon after this. Um, second, what podcasts are you listening to at the moment, besides Phoenix Talent Talks, obviously? The business podcast I like the most is called Acquired. Okay. The two guys in the US, and they go deep on IPOs and large companies. They might do like a three-hour podcast on Dropbox or Pinterest, and they'll get incredibly back great background information on, on those companies. So Acquired is a great podcast. And then non-business, there's a podcast called Caution Retail. And it just tells interesting stories about 
cautionary tales from life. So how did the charge of the Light Brigade happen? It was actually a communications problem. So a uh, cautionary tale for non-business acquired for business. Excellent, like it. Three, what is your one daily non-negotiable? I try to get home by half six so I can spend an hour to an hour and a half with my son. Love it. Love it. Four, pet peeves in business. Pet peeves in business. Uh, bad writing. Ooh, interesting. Mm, bit okay. of a, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fain for getting out the red pen in Wayflower and doctoring documents and picking <laughs> up bad grammar. So I think probably bad writing. Uh, it's becoming more and more important as we become more and more remote. It means you have to write a lot of things down that you didn't have to write down in the past. And you need to be a compelling writer to have 230 people follow your document, especially mm. if it's longer than three or four pages. So becoming a really good writer is probably something that a lot of us got away with in the past, but we cannot get away with in the future, particularly as we move to more hybrid remote environment. Interesting and not what I would have ex expected maybe you to say. So that's a really interesting one. And finally, I think you kind of have alluded to this, but do you manage to switch off? And if so, how? For a prolonged period of time, the only way that I can switch off is by going skiing. It seems to be the only activity where like, yeah, I'm not thinking about work and that can happen over like a prolonged period of time. Uh, outside of that, probably not really. I switch off at the weekends a bit, but I'll always be reading something that relates to business because I have a natural interest in it outside of Wayflower. So I'll probably always be reading something kind of business related, even if I'm not working. Um, but for like a prolonged total detox from work, skiing, I find is probably the best way to do it. Okay, interesting. And a matter of interest, is your diary, like is your work diary just literally chock a block, chock a block, chock a block? No. no. Okay. I, uh, it is at the moment, um, just with the way there are a few activities on at the moment. Mm. But typically, I'll have at least 12 hours a week uh, with no meetings booked at all for me just to spend time on what I want to spend time on. I'm just, I'm just, and what what do you do with that time? Is it you know strategy or just headspace? It's normally headspace? it's normally it's normally document review. So right. if we're releasing a new product or if we're putting an RFP in for, for as part of a partnership or preparing board documents, I might go for a wander on the building. It typically tends to be early in the morning because they're my best hours. Mm. So typically, this week is a bad example, but. Next week, I probably have very little in the calendar before 10.30 any morning. Love it. Where else would you get this information, people? Only here. <laughs> Only here. So that wraps up our very first episode of our new success series here with Talent Talks. As always, be sure to follow us online across all social media platforms and, of course, podcasting platforms. See you next time. Mm -hmm.